From the Financial Times in London, I'm Darren Dodd and this is FT News. The 2008 financial crisis caused a big squeeze on government finances across Europe and many responded by making cutbacks to public services. But what impact have these austerity programmes had on public health? This is a subject of a study from the International Longevity Centre, the specialist think tank on ageing, and with me in the studio to discuss the report's findings are Ben Franklin, one of the authors of the report, and Sarah Neville, the FT's global pharmaceuticals editor and health policy expert. So, Ben, first, can you tell us what prompted you to carry out the study? This particular study was something that we thought was really important because austerity obviously has been the real keynote public policy issue of the last decade or so, but yet there seemed to have been little exploration of what it really meant for public health outcomes. So we thought that as a unique piece of work, it would be really important to try and disentangle the effects of austerity policies per se from obviously the economic downturn that took place during that period of time. There's very little else out there actually Apart from this, looking cross-nationally, so there are a very few number of studies looking at, say, Greece. There's a few more looking at the UK and there have been some more out recently, but not that many looking cross-nationally. And we thought maybe we could take some sort of generalised examples from all of those to work out what works well and what doesn't. So can you share with us some of the key findings from the report? Absolutely. So our report follows a number of stages. So we map out what austerity means in terms of public policy and expenditure. And then we look at what happened to public health outcomes. And then we also try and find any causal links between austerity and health. I suppose the big findings from this are more on the descriptive data side rather than the causal data side. So we find, for example, like right across Europe, prevention spending has fallen. And that is in great contrast to the years before austerity took place. And in some instances, these prevention spending cuts were quite severe. There was also a slowdown in mortality rate improvement. So to be clear, there was still an improvement in the overall death rate falling during this period of time, but it didn't fall as far as had happened before the austerity years. And that also translated in a slowdown in life expectancy improvements too. And the final thing I sort of add on the, the sort of descriptive side was the fall in subjective health. So across the EU, 16 to 24 year olds actually saw a fall in subjective health. So that's the proportion of people who think themselves to be in good or very good health during this period. So perhaps that had something to do with the large cuts to social security and also some of the changes to their employment status as well. In terms of our findings on actually linking austerity policies to health outcomes, as other studies have found, it's kind of inconclusive because we were looking very much on mortality data. And clearly it's going to take many years for austerity policies to translate into real world outcomes in terms of mortality. But we think given the profound changes that happened to health systems during this period of time, that there are early warning signs that we identify in the report. OK, well, perhaps I should bring in Sarah now. now. Sarah, you wrote about life expectancy this summer. What was it you found there? Well, this was the latest work from Sir Michael Marmot, one of the really great international experts on life expectancy and particularly health inequalities. He's had a big focus over many years on different health and longevity outcomes for different social groups. And this latest piece of work found rather dramatically, broadly in line with what Ben is saying as well, but his work showed that improvements in life expectancy in England had virtually ground to a halt over the past seven years. And he was very careful not to draw any ironclad link with austerity, but he did 
obviously point out the sort of coincidences of timing that the period over which the improvement in life expectancy had slowed and almost been extinguished did cover the period of greatest austerity. So he talked about, for example, the potential impact of food insecurity, pointing out that if you're feeding your family from a food bank, perhaps the nutritional value is not as great as for those who can afford to shop in the regular way. So I think he certainly threw up some very interesting questions. He didn't give definitive answers. But one of the really striking things I thought that he pointed out was that for many years, as life expectancy inexorably rose, if you worked for eight hours, you got that for nothing, as you put it, because that's how much your life expectancy increased during that 24 hours. But that is no longer the case. And the improvement rate has now halved to a one year increase every 10 years for women and every six years for men. And there are some new data about life expectancy just out, is that right? Yes, the Office for National Statistics has changed the methodology by which it's calculating life expectancy from a mean to a median. So essentially it's stripping out those who lived a very short time or or a very long time. And the result of this has been to add significantly to the life expectancy for both men and women. So the picture does look slightly more cheerful, but nevertheless, they're not shying away from the broad trajectory of improvement slowing. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Let's look at one of these other subjects health prevention programs. In Britain, we've had recently some complaints from anti-smoking groups about quite large cuts in anti-smoking programs from councils. What are the kind of programs that get in the chop, say, across Europe that we might not know about? Yes. So as I mentioned, um, prevention spending has fallen right across Europe during this period of time. It's one of the key areas of health spending that has seen real terms falls on a per head basis. If you look across Europe, the comparable data isn't great. But what we can conclude from this is that flu vaccination coverage amongst adults has actually fallen considerably in a number of countries. So across Europe, we kind of hope for 75% flu vaccination levels amongst the over 65s. That's seen as the benchmark. And a number of countries are now falling below that because of cuts to prevention spending during this period of time. And there have been studies in the past that have shown that flu vaccination is actually very cost effective too. So in the long run, this is actually something that's going to be detrimental to the fiscal balance of countries as well. In terms of other comparable indicators that we looked at, we also looked at breast cancer screening programmes amongst target age groups. And while we can't see any evidence of falling coverage, what we don't see is increasing coverage. And again, that means we are still falling below the, again, 75% threshold in a number of European countries. And clearly, this is a time when we should actually be improving our health systems and improving our prevention access rather than either keeping it the same or reducing it. So I think there are real causes for concerns across uh, Europe due to austerity. And this idea of subjective health, I don't want to characterize just miserable Brits, but we do seem to be, is it one of the few countries that across the board we are uniquely feeling worse? Right? Absolutely. So if you look across Europe, the 16 to 24 year age group have seen a fall. All other age categories have seen a rise, albeit the rise is smaller than before austerity. Now, if you look at the UK, all age categories have seen a fall in their subjective health. So that, again, that's the proportion of people who think they are in good or very good health that has actually fallen. And interestingly, it's the over 65 age category that seem to have fallen 
the greatest, whether that's to do with provision of long-term care, because actually long-term care expenditure increased in many countries during the austerity years, whereas in the UK, we've seen real problems in terms of funding and resourcing that. One thing I would imagine is that actually, you know, a lot of these other countries are ageing faster than the UK in any case. And adult social care is obviously a really key issue for them. They may also operate different models in terms of the health and social care system. But nevertheless, what seems to be unique is that the UK has been quite poor in terms of resourcing the social care system when these other countries have been continuing to increase it even during a time of austerity. That's fascinating because here one of our sort of huge problems which arguably Mm. does contribute to a significant number of deaths is people's inability to be released from hospital even when they're medically fit because there aren't sufficient resources in the community and that in turn is leading to physical decline, muscle wastage and the like, and also cognitive decline, not to mention the ever-present concern that one will actually contract something else in hospital. So although I don't have the data that definitively shows it, that in itself I think is leading to an increase in deaths, an increase in mortality. The big political question here is how much of this can we actually blame on austerity? I don't know if, Sarah, you've got a view on that. I think, you know, it's that old chestnut. Are we talking mere correlation or actual causation? But there was some fascinating work that came out of the US earlier in the year, which found that life expectancy amongst white Americans with a high school education was actually lower um, than those who were black or Hispanic in terms of, you know, they were more likely to die early than members of those other groups, which was a reversal, I guess, of what would have been conventional orthodoxy. And the view of the researchers who carried out that work, Anne Case and Sir Angus Deaton, the economists, was that This was due to what they called the diseases of despair. This was overdoses, suicides, alcohol-related illnesses. And even though you could, of course, broadly relate that to austerity in the sense of, you know, the failure of the traditional model of globalisation, these people being unable to find fulfilling work... But perhaps one can't quite class that as austerity in the way that your report was defining it, Ben. But I wondered what your view was on that. I think it's very, very difficult to extrapolate the difference between an economic downturn and government policy in terms of austerity. I think our study has tried to touch on that point by comparing the health outcomes of people in high versus modest austerity countries. And again, it's a little bit inconclusive, to be quite honest with you. What I would say, however, so our think tank obviously is very interested in ageing and how do you secure an ageing population that is also kind of sustainable for the government, for individuals in the long run? And for us, it really is about healthy ageing. So if countries as part of this austerity are cutting prevention spending, which is the key element to providing for a healthier, older population, then that, in our view, may well actually store up problems for the future. So while some of these health cuts, etc., or social expenditure cuts, may not have translated into immediately poor outcomes for mortality rates, for example, it doesn't necessarily mean that over the longer run, they won't have some profound impacts for individuals. And one of the perhaps most worrying aspects across the data that we looked at was the level of rising unmet need for health care across Europe. So those countries that cut the furthest have the highest levels of unmet need as a result. And that, we think, is a worrying indicator for the future. 
Okay, well, plenty to chew on there. You'll find Ben's full report on the International Longevity Centre website, and you'll get more from Sarah Neville and the FT Health team at ft.com health. And you'll also find links there to sign up for your free Friday health briefing. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.